0: And uh, if you would open your Bibles with me before you get seated to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We are in a study of biblical worldviews. And uh, so we've been in it for the, since the beginning of uh, January. And so what is this? Our sixth sermon. And we'll be coming at it till March, the first Sunday in March. And then we'll go back to our study in Matthew. But today we'll be talking about The third aspect of what we termed sphere sovereignty, we talked about the family, we talked about the church, and today we get to talk about the state. So would you follow along with me as I read from the word of God in our text today, Matthew, or excuse me, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the living God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the living God. And may he write its truths upon our hearts. Would you join me in prayer once again?
1: Lord, we come before you, in hearing your word today we honor you and
0: your word today and we desire to respond to it with the obedience of faith i pray today that you would help your word to sink deeply into our hearts write its truths deeply there and let us understand something that is often misunderstood lord in and among many christians how do we understand the role of civil government and how do we respond? So help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. You know, sometimes we come to a sermon and I don't know exactly what's going on in your life right now, but we're looking for something, we're trying to grasp onto something that we really need, and you might think a sermon on government isn't something you need right now. We're <laughs> going into politics, you better believe it, because the Bible is quite political. And so we'll talk about that today, and, and you may hear, and it might not seem to transform your life today, right now, in this very moment. But, but if you can grasp, I believe, if you can grasp the truths that we're going to, that I'm going to do my best to pull out of this text and others today about this topic of sphere sovereignty and in particular the state. It may not immediately change your life, but it could very well change the lives of your, your great-grandchildren. We're coming today to understand things in the long game. We're playing the long game we've, we've talked about before, uh, the William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, I mentioned a few weeks back, wrote in his journal regarding those who had come over seeking religious freedom and these incredible people, very godly people, who came to the Plymouth Plantation and founded, really, the, the, the seedbed of this, what became this, this nation. They saw themselves as stepping stones. They saw themselves as ones who would lay their lives down upon the principles of God for the establishment of of the kingdom of God in in a land. And they sought and and fought for the things of God. The founders as well of this nation understood these principles well. They're principles that come out of the Reformation, that great time in history where providentially God reinvigorated his, his word there was a great illumination of his word to many great men who then taught to the church and the proliferation of the gospel went around the world. Certainly was a puritanical understanding, this understanding of states that the great Puritans understood these principles and walked them out in some particular ways that, that we have certainly lost today. This the concept of sphere sovereignty was coined, as far as I understand, from a guy named Abraham Kuyper, who was in the 1800s, was an incredible theologian, pastor. He, he edited two newspapers. He was the, ended up being the prime minister of the Netherlands. It's an amazing history. And, and he wrote about this sphere sovereignty. I encourage you to read his great book, Lectures on Calvinism, and, and particularly the, the topic on the uh, governmental roles. There are different spheres. Here's what we pull out of Scripture, and I mentioned sphere sovereignty. That's, you're not going to find that in the Bible, but you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible either. But we find the Trinity all over the Bible. And this concept is a similar type of a concept. Did we lose our slides? We lost them? All right, we lost the slides. It's, it's on your, uh, your handout. There's that little uh, graphic there. And on your graphic, it, it's you see the circles, right? And in the big circle is Christ. And there's different ways we could, have, we could have illustrated this, but the understanding is this. When we talk about sphere sovereignty, you're talking about authority, okay? It has, it has everything to do with authority. And the idea is God is the authority. He is the supreme ruler of all. He, he's over all. He Christ himself, all things have been given to him. All authority has been given to him. And in that, he has delegated this authority. God delegates authority into specific spheres, which, which do touch. They do connect with one another in the sense that they're interrelated, but yet they are distinct, primarily distinct in jurisdictional authority. And say, so how does that, what does that look like practically? It looks like uh, I, I am my wife's husband. In that sphere, I'm her husband, and I love her. And I love you too, but my is different, right? I love my wife in a particular way, and I, and I love my children, and I father my children. I don't father your children. There's an authority that, this, that the sphere of the family has that the church, for instance, doesn't have. The church is another sphere ordained by God, instituted by God, and the church has an authority, Right? But the church does not have the authority, for instance, to execute those who come late to worship service. Otherwise, a lot of you would be, you know, goners today. <laughs> we don't have certain authority, right? That, that, we don't, even though historically speaking, the church has, has made category errors in not understanding these things, and they have, for instance, made mistakes, executed heretics. was not their role. The role of the church is, is a prophetic role to, to declare the word of God, right? And, and so when it comes to my authority as a pastor, there is a sense of authority here, but I can't tell you what to have for lunch today. Children, your mom can tell you that <laughs> because she has jurisdictional authority in your life. And so how we understand this really matters, and particularly matters when it comes to understanding the role of government as instituted by God. Romans 13 is followed by Romans what? Oh, excuse me, is preceded by Romans, see you all are listening, that's really good, preceded by Romans 12, which is preceded by 11 chapters of the most astounding, magnificent doctrine of justification by faith. It's Paul's magnum opus, right? It's amazing, this book, this letter to the Romans, and then he comes to chapter 12 and he shifts gears into some practical appeal to the people of God based upon the doctrine that he just explained to them. We can't go back and cover all the first 11 chapters, and we can't even cover chapter 12 today, but let me read the first two verses to you. Based on who Christ is and what he has done, based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, he says. Why do you think he needs to say that? Because there's a constant temptation to be conformed to this world. And when he's talking about this this world, he's talking about the the system of, of sin and fallenness that pervades humanity. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. As Christians, we have to constantly have our minds renewed by the Word of God. Why? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is one of the things that the church of our day needs the renewal of the mind by the Word of God. And we really need it in this, in particular in this understanding of how we look at governmental authority. I think it's A.W. Tozer, one of uh, his writings, he, he talked about the need for the church of his day, and I would say it applies to our day, was not revival. Because he says if, if the church is revived, it's good, we're just going to have more of what's already there. And that may not be good. <laughs> the church needs reformation first and then revival. And that's why we're going through this series on, 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 on biblical worldview, because we need a reformation in our thinking to make sure we're lined up with a biblical way of thinking so we can now live it out. Romans 12 is all about worshiping God with, with character, with love, with, with grace, with forgiveness, with peace, overcoming good, or excuse me, evil, with good. And that leads us right into Romans chapter 13. And, 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 and this has long been a very controversial and frequently misunderstood passage. It's a difficult topic because it's emotionally uh, and, and practically challenging, especially in an era with massive government overreach and indoctrination. And so we, we have to approach the text carefully because it's a text that was also often referred to just in the past few years in light of COVID mandates, in light of church lockdowns, in light of
1: coercion in most of, in all of the Western world. It's usually invoked to require this almost unquestioning
0: subservience and submission to the state. So we must understand it well. Also, we see that when it comes to the Christian worldview, which is what we're talking about, think about the non-Christian worldview. The non-Christian, secular, pagan worldview offers no reason to obey the state except that the state has a monopoly on the means of force and some very deep pockets <laughs> resources through coercive taxation right and so th- there's no basis in a chance originating world without god there's no basis to obey a civil authority except v- except force except a bigger gun than you and so It's only the Christian view of government that frees us, that truly liberates us. So this is why it's important for us to understand this. Again, sphere sovereignty, the word sovereignty is is authority. God works through authority. He delegates his authority. He has himself all authority. His authority that he he yields on earth is, is an internal authority. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit the authority of God in, you, in your life to control you, to lead you, right? We don't walk according to the flesh, we walk according to the spirit. And so if you have the Holy Spirit, praise God, that means you are definitely prone and apt to obeying the word of God. God's authority is also, on a, it's also external. It also has to be forced upon us at times. It has to, has to have an aspect of coercion to it. That's why, parents, we discipline our children. We live in a society that looks at that as horrible, just wrong, evil. How dare you do that? How dare you not? How dare you not love your child enough? God's authority is on this continuum from parental to civil. Parents, you got to understand this concept because if you don't, what are you going to pass on to your kids? What authority are you in? Think of fathers. You have a position of authority. And also, what authority are you under? How do you respond to that authority? We see from Scripture that sin, in essence, is a rebellion against authority, a rebellion against the authority of God. And it's the default of the flesh because of the fall. And that affects everything. Again, biblical worldview. We have what are our three, what's the, the summary? Three words?
1: Creation, fall, redemption—you have to understand it all and how it affects everything.
0: We also have to understand that because of the fall, sinners are never going to make a perfect system. And if one existed, we as sinners would ruin it. <laughs> and we're going to see from this passage that the state then is God's instituted servant. The state is 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 a God-given and God-ordained sphere of authority that has its own unique God-given nature. And here's where we need to understand. That nature, that God-given nature is coercive by design. So when the state goes into areas that it does not belong, it can't help but, but bring that same coercive nature with it into the other spheres. However, when each sphere is functioning within its proper way, the natural result is the growth of godly freedom and godly flourishing. We can see this looking back in history, at least the history of our nation. It's a young nation, but it was founded by some people that understood these things, not perfectly. They didn't walk out everything perfectly, but they walked out everything better than any other nation in the history of the world. We should be thankful for that. And we should pray that it may be restored and thrive and flourish even. Three points I have for you this morning on this passage. The first one is this God instituted civil government, and He requires subjection from everyone to its rightful authority. Secondly, the purpose of civil government is to administrate godly justice. Fill in those blanks. Godly justice. And thirdly, we'll ask, how are Christians to live under the authority of civil government? Good question. Glad you asked. We'll answer it. Point number one, God instituted civil government and he requires subjection of everyone to its rightful authority. In that language, you see sphere sovereignty. It has a rightful authority. Verse 1 of Romans 13, let every person be subject to to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from god and those that exist have been instituted by god here paul is laying the groundwork for obedience to government an authority that is god-given an authority that is god-ordained the state has so paul says every person is to be subject to governing authorities plural this is a general term. And this is what we need to understand to understand this passage. It's a general term that can denote a whole bunch of different authorities, right? Uh, you, have, you have parent parental authority, you have church authority, etc. But in Romans 13, it has specific and special reference to civil power. This authority is empowered to govern by enacting and administrating law. So in the first instance, here in the first couple verses of Romans 13, we see government is referred to in the ideal. It's not a reference initially to particular people, particular magistrates, but to the institution of the state itself. And so Paul calls on every person to be subject To be obedient to God's institution of civil government. And he calls uh, Christians to be subject to that institution just in the same way that you know throughout Scripture he's called everyone to be subject to, for instance, family instituted authority. Authority exercised through parents, Ephesians 6. The institutional church, church authority through elders, Hebrews 13. In the same way we're to be subject to God's laws and God's norms, if you will, for the state. Now let me ask you, are there because it begs the question: are there cruel and unjust parents? How about are there some really wicked church
1: leaders? Are there evil and lawless civil governments? See, this reality,
0: as we come to Romans 13, It ne- by necessity puts limits around our obedience in all of these institutions. But that's not what Paul's dealing with here. That's not his, his point or his concern here in, in the first part of Romans 13. He, he, he's focusing and dealing solely with the character and the duties of civil government and our responsibility to this God-ordained sphere of authority. A great book on the topic is, was written by Francis Schaeffer, A Christian Manifesto. I encourage you to get it and read it. Francis Schaeffer posed a critical question in this book. He, he asked this question, Has God set up an authority in the state that is autonomous from himself? Are we to obey the state no matter what? In this one area is indeed man the measure of all things? And it's a rhetorical question, right? The, the answer is clearly Not. Because authority is from God, and it exists because of him. And so we're immediately alerted to the fact that in this teaching, Paul, what he's doing, he's radically altering the pagan, in particular Roman, political understanding of his Gentile readers. He's placing all authority under the triune God in all of its operation. And it is therefore limited immediately by God and his word. And so this gives the Christian then a positive duty to obey civil authority in things lawful, duty that the unbeliever doesn't appreciate, nor understand. Schaefer goes on. He he answers his own question in this way. It's probably up on the screen. He says, the civil government as all of life stands under the law of God. In this fallen world, God has given us certain offices to protect us from the chaos which is the natural result of that fallenness. But when any office commands what is contrary to the word of God, those who hold that office abrogate their authority and they are not to be obeyed, and that includes the
1: state. So take a church. If Pastor Brian decides one day that y'all need to move to
0: uh, Guyana down in South America and drink some (laughs) Kool-Aid, thank you. (laughs) Better than that, you should drive me out of here with some sticks or something. (laughs) And in the same way, Romans 13 here is not this, this particular call to obey every single thing the government does. It's setting up the understanding that God has instituted government and has a rightful and, and lawful authority and you have a duty as a Christian because it's, it's the authority of God to respond properly to that authority. He's not dealing with church-state relations here, least of all demanding that the church institute and, and its, its leadership would cave in to all the requirements of civil government. You see, sphere sovereignty certainly teaches the separation of church and state, but does not teach the separation of state from God. That's a modern enlightenment-oriented concept that, that man ended up thinking he's autonomous and God is dead and has no authority in our lives. We're going we're to be our own gods. James Wilson has a fantastic commentary on Romans 13. You can find it online. He writes these words, the church is an independent society. Her constitution, her doctrines, her laws, her administration, all are from Christ and to him alone she is subject. How does that work with this call that Paul is giving the Romans? Let's look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. See, since all spheres of authority are established by God, instituted by God, to resist orderly and rightful authority, to, to, to resist being subject to that proper authority, is in essence to oppose God himself. God's ordinances that he has established to reject the role of civil authority in human society. It's an act of rebellion against God. It implies defiance of of legitimate authority at a root level. It it, it does not refer to resistance to immoral laws or unjust, uh, unjust laws or oppression. Rather, we're called to respect and honor duly constituted authority under God. Now, in the providence of God, and by his permission, kings reign, governors rule, various governments rise and come to power, right? Jesus even told Pontius Pilate, you remember, that he would have no authority over him unless it had been granted to him from above. In this sense, even the devil himself is granted power and authority from God in the world. So that that helps us understand that the simple possession of power is not sufficient reason to obey a given authority. That would imply the unacceptable idea that for instance if if a man was stolen, kidnapped and put into slavery that he would then be by Romans 13 duty bound to obey and submit to that vicious and lawless power contradicting the law of God in Exodus 2116 that would command the one who kidnapped him to be put to death that he must not seek escape or freedom otherwise he would be violating the word of God but Paul is is not excuse me he's clearly not teaching that every tyrant Every wicked dictator governs somehow by divine sanction. That interpretation would bind people, would bind nations and, and societies to surrender to tyranny and to do so in the name of divine support and approval. That's absurd. It's an absurd view that fails to distinguish divine providence from a scriptural principle of action. Certainly, in in the divine ways of providence, there are are times when an evil ruler is allowed to come to power. God uses, throughout Scripture, even evil rulers to judge nations, even his own people. But no one can claim divine sanction for evil, for, for, for injustice, for sin. God is not approving of that. The counsels of God are always righteous, always pure, Always perfect, always just. It's vital to keep that in mind that that in verses 1 and 2, Paul is referring to the institution of government, not specific actions or actors. He maintains a clear distinction between the authority and the ordinance, between the, the sphere of government as a societal institution and whatever particular president or prime minister or magistrate happens to be in office At the time. He's asserting that no authority can be properly exercised over people except that which God has established. And then he goes on to to show the kind of power and authority that God that that does have God's approval, which is not any old government, but only those that are subject to his norms, if you will, his, his ways, his ordinances would certainly limit the role and function of the institution of state. So when people advocate for an almost unquestioning obedience to the state, in in especially this current cultural circumstance, by appealing to Romans 13, they reveal a serious error of interpretation in assuming that Paul intends any and all existing governments such a view, it, it contradicts clear, the clear teaching of the Bible. And so that certainly is not Paul's perspective. Think of Israel. When they set up an independent government with ten tribes under Jeroboam, God says through the prophet Hosea, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. My stamp wasn't on that. Certainly, God permitted this in his providence, but he clearly did not sanction it. In a similar way, the prophet Daniel and and the apostle John referred to the Roman Empire as this multi-headed beast whose heads are full of blasphemous names. Such governments cannot lay claim to being ordained or, or sanctioned by God in any other sense or any other way in which God permits judgment and disease to come upon people for their sins. Judgments that are to be removed as soon as possible by repentance and faith and right attitude toward God. In fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed for that purpose. That the stone not cut with human hands would smash to pieces the great image of rebellious and evil governments that Daniel saw in his vision. So it follows. When we place all government specifically under God, Paul shows that civil government was not left to to this human arbitrariness or human ambition or or pride or, or violence, but it's ordained by God with prescribed limitations and functions and duties. This is why the confession of the early church led by the Apostle Paul in in, in the Gentile world was Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is the sovereign, the one with all authority, and that ran counter the claims of Caesar
1: in Rome. Power not derived from God is always
0: an illegitimate usurpation of authority. The Christians, the early Christians understood this. And so there's obviously this means that there are times when an illegitimate or a lawless authority must be resisted, especially when it intrudes into the life of God's people into the life of the worship of God and, and the government and ordinances of the church. We saw that over the past few years as the state shut churches down. And I think most of the churches did initially respond because, you know, the church didn't know what was going on. We cared about the health of people and, and such, but as things kept going on and on and, and, and as, as, you know, abortion clinics were seen as, as necessary services, and as, as strip clubs were seen as, as necessary services, churches began to wake up and realize, wait a minute, there's something more going
1: on here. And they resisted. Thank God they resisted. Consider uh, Azariah, who was the high priest when Uzzah was the king of Judah, 2 Chronicles 26.
0: And the king of Judah decided to overreach his sphere of authority into the priestly office, do the duties that were only for the priests. Do you remember what the high priest said? Verse 18 of 2 Chronicles 26, he tells them, it is not for you, Uzziah. It is not for you to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. See, that's the king. How can he talk that way? He had no authority in that area. The priest had the authority. Consider Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three of the great young men, and then later Daniel, all of whom refused to comply with specific laws enacted by the the supreme king of Babylon, the one with the most earthly authority of that day. His very word was considered irrevocable. And what did they do? They took their stand in terms of the word of God. And the pagan officials knew that the only way to bring a charge against such men of character, such a righteous man like Daniel and his friends, was by enacting something contradicting the very commands of God. Think of the, the Hebrew midwives who, when instructed by Pharaoh himself, the great king, instructed to, to kill their little sons that were, were, that were born, they refused, they stood and they said No. If this basis for resistance and the sovereignty and the law of God is removed, then all law and morality is simply resolved into the
1: absolute will of the state to do whatever they want. That's happening because the church doesn't understand this. California has tried multiple times to pass what
0: Canada has already passed, anti-conversion therapy legislation which would send a guy like me to jail. We see this legislation throughout our nation, the, the, I
1: call it the Disrespect for Marriage Act. The codifying into law of the burning alive and ripping apart of the limbs of a baby in the womb. And such things are legal and celebrated.
0: There are movements and attempts to criminalize anyone, parent or pastor or therapist, anyone who would dare counsel anybody to obey the word
1: of God with regard to, to hu- human identity and, and sexuality. I, for one, will never comply with such laws. I cannot comply. This surely is godly resistance.
0: The kind of resistance Paul is condemning and, and, and in Romans 13 is clearly not resistance to lawless commands, but, but rather the, the brazen opposition to rightful and wholesome exercise of civil authority, and although the lawless attempts to overthrow it. God has instituted civil government. He requires subjection from everyone to its rightful authority. What is the purpose then of of this authority? Point two, the purpose of civil government is to administrate godly justice. It's not the job of the civil government to promote virtue, but to restrain vice. The role of the state, authorized by God, is comes down to this, the protection of life, liberty, and property. Our founders understood that. They understood that people, and we should understand, that people are sinners by nature and by choice, right? We're not good and getting better. We are not progressing. (laughs) That's a lie that's pernicious. It's as pernicious and, and powerful as it is delusional. The more we increase technology, the, the, the better we get, the, the, the more that, that we learn and understand, the more we're actually increasing the capacity to cause human suffering and destruction and death. If you believe the Bible, you believe that this world is dangerous. It's a dangerous place to live. That there are people on this planet who are our foe, not our friend. No matter what you do. That being said, human life and flourishing matters to our God. Our God is the living God. He made us in His image, in His likeness to live, to flourish. And as a result, He wants the government or the state to preserve human
1: life, to protect property and liberty. And if you remove laws, and if you remove law enforcement, people suffer severely. I just heard a story recently in the midst of the defund
0: the police movement, right? That's a great idea. Crime is up. Let's just take all the cops away. (laughs) That'll fix everything.
1: Do you see where sin goes? There's a business owner up in the Pacific Northwest,
0: who's kind of chaos central over the last couple years, who had a little store and all his stuff was looted by vandals from his store and stolen, and he could not get insurance because he was in a zone that was considered uninsurable. (laughs) And so he second mortgages his house, and and he went and paid to restock his inventory, and guess what? They did it again. And he calls the cops. They can't come anymore. What's happening? They're just stealing stuff. Okay, are they, are they going to kill you? I don't think so. They're just stealing
1: stuff. I'm sorry, we can't come. Put them, put them out of business. Bankrupted them. You
0: see, evil won't stop itself. And so civil authority is this ministry All authorities of God, no no man has any rightful power over other men which is not derived from God. All human authority and power is delegated power, it's ministerial power. And this is true of parents, this is true of magistrates, this is true of, of church leaders. Charles Hodge wrote these words. This passage therefore affords a very slight foundation for the doctrine of passive obedience. You see, Scripture is crystal clear about this ministerial role and the accountability of civil authority as a ministry of justice. In, in fact, God pronounces his woes, his curses upon authorities that violate God's laws and norms. Look at uh, Jeremiah twenty-two, thirteen: 13. Woe for the one who builds his palace through unrighteousness, his upper rooms through injustice. Isaiah 10, woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial, to deprive the afflicted among my people of justice. Psalmist asks a good question in Psalm 94, 20, can wicked rulers be allied with you, God? Those who frame injustice by
1: statute, can, can a corrupt throne become God's ally? Certainly not. The
0: Apostle Paul reinforces this biblical truth by asserting that the civil government is to be God's servant as an avenger of wrath. What does this mean? Francis Schaeffer is helpful again to grasp the meaning of these verses. He says, This God has ordained the state as a delegated authority, it is not autonomous. The state is to be an agent of justice to restrain evil by punishing the wrongdoer and to protect the good in society. And when it does the reverse, it has no proper authority. It is then usurped authority, and as such it becomes lawless and is tyranny. talked earlier about the nature of the state. See, the state has has a tendency that is totalizing. It's like a It's like my dog, Champ. (laughs) We could feed Champ all day long and he wouldn't stop eating. (laughs) If you have a lab, you probably understand that.
1: They eat and they eat and they eat and they eat and they eat. And where the state attempts
0: to swallow in in a way that is a parts to whole relationship, where it sees itself as this, this... parts, you're just parts of the whole, every aspect of society is wanted to get sucked into itself. Every aspect of society, including your family, which, which would then be at the bottom of the list on their agenda. All of that in the totalizing tendency of the state wants to be under the authority of the state, in a godless state. That's what's what's been happening over the last 50 years in the modern Western state. The the state, that's why they've presumed to to redefine the family. To take the institution ordained by God from creation, that is the core foundation of any civil society, and let's just redefine it. It thinks it can actually define, redefine a pre-political institution. The redefinition of marriage, the seizing of control of children, moving to take over medicine, taking over education so that it, it controls the education of our children. Wanting to control commerce and the marketplace, welfare, everything. It goes on and on and on. And, and so the big issue is here, does the state... In a parts to whole, does the state, do they have a parts to whole relationship? Or does the state have its own sphere with limited
1: jurisdictional authority to its own sphere? That, my friends, is the Christian worldview. The different
0: spheres of authority we've talked about, they have different jurisdictions, different characters, different natures, right? The government of the church, it's not identical, and it can't be confused with the government of the family,
1: and so forth. There's a, there's a different law and order that's worked out within the
0: different spheres, distinct from the others. But the state, by its very nature of coercion brings with it into its, from its
1: sphere, sphere, what the other spheres do not have, according to Paul, and it's the sword. The power of the sword. The church does not have the power of the sword. There's no authority to bring about civil penalty in the church. with this sword power that is ordained of God.
0: When you take that sword and you leave the sphere of God-given authority and you take it into other spheres, you bring it into education, you bring it into medicine, you bring it into welfare, or you bring it into the church, you, you need to be aware that anytime time you do that, you, the state brings with it its own nature which is coercive, it it can't deny its own nature even in these different contexts. It's going to bring its own nature, which is not simply to give you some advice.
1: It's to coerce you. That's what the state does. When we send
0: Neil and his Marines off to go take care of an issue that needs to get taken care of for our nation, they don't go over there and have a nice chat.
1: They go over there with overwhelming force. And so you can see the danger that because the state brings with
0: it sword power, coercion, that's why a totalitarian parts to whole understanding of the state is so dangerous because it brings with it that kind of coercive power into these areas, and then freedom is lost. So Paul teaches about rulers. They are to be rulers that are are not to be a cause of fear for good behavior, for good works. They're supposed to be a fear to those who do evil. And this is where in the text we encounter for the first time a specific magistrate. He was talking about institutions, now he's focusing on specific magistrates or legislators or presidents, whoever it might be. And it reminds us again of this vital distinction between the institution of government dealt with in verses 1 and 2 and particular governors themselves. We are to understand these things, we are to study these things, and we are to know them and understand God's norm for the institution of civil government because we have a responsibility before that civil government. How we respond matters. We are to obey rulers, but we're also to test for conformity to God's word in those rulers. That's why the king of Israel from the Old Testament was required to to read the law himself, to study it so he wouldn't be haughty and, and prideful raised above the people.
1: Governors and the governed are subject to the law of God. So, the kind of ruler to whom
0: Paul is in his instructions to the Christian here actually applies to are not cause for fear if you're good. Shouldn't be afraid to have to stand up here and preach the gospel.
1: Government intrusion coming in. That happens in China. North Korea, Cuba.
0: And if we stay on course and we as Christians don't begin to understand
1: these things, it very well may happen here one day. The thrust of Paul's message is teaching us what good government looks like. Peter
0: also explains these things as he says in 1 Peter 2.13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. God is to be feared. And the civil authority are to be honored in its calling to punish those that do wrong and and commend those who do what is right. And so as such, the rulers that Paul and and Peter are referring to are, are those who judge and apply the law in a manner that does not hinder either
1: the spread of the gospel or faithfulness to God's word. They are servants of God. And they
0: are to be servants of God. That first word, servant, in verses 1 and 2 is actually deacons. They're God's deacons. The institution is the, the, like the deacon of God in that particular area. The second word, servant, is, is a word that actually uh, comes from, no, actually, that's is literally deacon. Sorry, I'm in the wrong place in my notes. I'm looking at
1: the other one. We're coming to it. That's going to be liturgy. How do we respond then? How do we respond as Christians, point three, that live under the authority of civil government?
0: If the state is required to exercise the power that God has invested in it justly and faithfully, great. We already have our commandments. What if they don't? Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So because the legitimate function of the state is to be a ministry of justice under God, in obedience to his standards of good and evil, of righteousness and
1: justice, the Christian obeys... Not simply because we're afraid of getting punished. We obey because of a higher principle. It's a matter of conscience before God. And this
0: conscience before God, which is to be saturated in the Word of God and, and governed by the Holy Spirit, becomes vital. In determining when we must disobey the state for violating God's norms or for abandoning its legitimate function, some have pointed out you may know, hear some Christians say, Well, you don't see the, the disciples or early church resisting government or exercising civil disobedience. Have you read the New Testament? <laughs> have you read Acts?
1: It is better to obey God than men. Have you read Fox's Book of Martyrs?
0: Have you seen those in the first century burned at the stake
1: because they would not say Caesar is Lord? From the early church on, Christians have
0: both obeyed and disobeyed civil government for the sake of conscience before God. And when the state has, has departed from its God-prescribed role, when, when unrighteous rulers enact what's contrary to God's commands, Christians, faithful Christians, has frequently been ready to give up their lives. Many have. I think of just one w- example, William Tyndale, the man who translated the Bible from its original languages into English He advocated the ultimate authority of God's word over the state and over the Roman church and he was eventually tried and executed for it. In fact, when you look at history, wherever the principles of the Reformation penetrated, God and his word were placed above the ruler or the king which often led to severe persecution. Puritan Samuel Rutherford Held that oppressive political power was not from God, but, quote, licentious deviation of power and is no more from God than a license to sin. Francis Schaeffler says very correctly here then, in almost every place that the Reformation had success, there was some form of civil disobedience. What does that mean? That's just march and take up our. Slow down, people. It takes a biblically informed conscience to not only know when to submit, but also when to disobey. Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. And the Christ who is Lord and is establishing his kingdom would not have us bow before a lower law that opposes him, that opposes his purpose. And so, so for the family in China who for wait so too long lived under this godless evil policy of one child... They had their one child, and now she's pregnant again, and the government would force them to abort that child.
1: Many Christians stood and said, No. We die rather than disobey God. Verse 6 For because of this
0: you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. That's it. The Torgos. It's where we get our word liturgy from another understanding that the civil realm, civil service, is a calling of God. It's a ministry. The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I have a lot more, but I'm going to wrap it up. Here's the point. Christians, pay, we pay taxes. And we're supposed to pay them respectfully. Jesus paid taxes. Matthew 22. Remember when, when uh, they told him about the coin and he's like, whose image is on it? Caesar's. Or render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God. But here's what I can say. Christians also ought to be a prophetic voice to the government with the tax policy. Because much of it is breaking the 8th commandment thou shalt not steal. Augustine, in his book City of God, told, told a story about a pirate who was captured by Alexander the Great and uh, brought before this trial and basically the pirate started saying, well, what's the difference between me and you?
1: I have one ship, you have a whole fleet, but we do the same thing. <laughs> well, how we respond... When it comes to tax paying is important
0: with how we understand what Christian honoring and respect looks like. How do we do this? Through Christ we can actually live out our duty to obey. As described in the word of God, we can also fulfill our duty to disobey when it is the will of God to do so. Pastor Martin Niemöller was a German pastor who under the evil regime of Adolf Hitler, would not stop preaching of the evils that they were acting out. And, of course, they threw him in prison. And one day the prison chaplain comes to visit Pastor Niemöller, and he asked, perhaps foolishly, what brings you here? Why are you in prison? says the chaplain, which Niemöller replied
1: quite angrily, Brother, why are you not in prison? The state
0: is a God-given and God-ordained sphere. It has its own unique God-given nature, and that nature is coercive by design. But when the state goes into areas that it does not belong, it can't help but bring that same coercive nature into these other spheres But when each sphere is functioning within its proper way, the natural result is the growth of godly freedom, godly flourishing. So what do we do about it? Quickly, very quickly. Team, music team, come up and get ready. Here's some Christian
1: responsibilities, be informed. If you call yourself a conservative, you better know what you're conserving.
0: We really just need to be informed. It's unacceptable today that the vast majority of those who claim to be Christian are totally uninformed of the fundamental view of Christian political life. And it's a very dangerous moment culturally for us to have no idea what the the dominant political view of sovereignty is versus the Christian view. Very dangerous.
1: What are we conserving? It's the Christian worldview of the state. That's what we're conserving, a sense of the
0: multifaceted nature of government, that the state needs to keep its proper place. That's the big battle of our age. So we need to be informed of this. We we need to turn off CNN and Fox News and open our Bibles and some books and learn. We should be subject and obey just laws. We should be... A prophetic witness to the state when we see unjust and abusive laws or tyranny. The church itself is obligated to prophetically witness to the truth the, to the state. To proclaim the truth to the state, to proclaim the word of God. That's what we I mean by prophecy, not like telling some future. Declaring the word of God to the state. We're to be prayerful. That's required by scripture to prayer prayer for our leaders. We're to be citizens and 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 vote. We're to be godly, resistant when we must, when it's called upon. Lastly, we're to be confident.
1: We're to be confident. I should have done this in two sermons. Be confident. Why? Because we win. Because Pastor David read it at at the last, uh, or at the beginning of the
0: service, and I'm just going to read it one more time. Jesus not only has the last word, he is the last word. Right? And look what's in his mouth. Revelation nineteen eleven. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and Righteous. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And Lord of lords, we win, folks. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen soldiers marching to war. You might have seen them, or maybe you've seen some of the movies and, and the old footage and film of these guys about to storm the beach. But how many of you have you seen soldiers marching to war in white linen that's ironed? And that tells you two things. We anticipate full victory, and it's not going to get very messy because he has all power and authority. It's not a, oh, he has to work really hard at this. He's
1: God. And that sword is effective. All his work was effective.
0: We're going to celebrate his work right now. We're going to remember his work ultimately that makes all of these things even possible. It's the work of the Incarnation. Of the Son of God, who came to this earth, lived the only perfect life anyone ever lived, died a sacrificial death for our sins, paid for our sins, took the wrath that I deserved, that you deserved, died on the cross, and rose again on the third day, conquering forever, the power
1: of sin, death, Satan, and hell for all who believe. It's our hope. It's our power. It's our victory.